All right, so as Greg mentioned last week, the topic that God uh, would have for us today is that God is on the throne, uh, and hopefully you read the whole Bible in the last week like Greg told you to. Um, I'm trying to do it through a year, so I don't think I could do it in a week, but um, we're going to be facing a lot of um, different passages, but our base passage is going to be in Revelation 4. Um, and, and it sounds like an elementary fact that God is on the throne, um, but I believe that God has something for us this morning. So don't like, oh, I know God's on the throne. I'm going to check out. Um, listen in to see what God would have um, for you today. And we're also going to be jumping to a bunch of different passages because I think the best way to understand scripture is to look at other scripture. Um, it's much better than hearing my thoughts is hear the thoughts of the scripture. Um, so let's pray for our time and then we'll get started. Lord, we thank you that you are here. Um, Lord, though you are on the throne and so far above us, um, so much higher than us, so much more holy, um, you still come down to meet us. You pursue us, um, Lord, and we know that you are in our midst today. Um, We pray that you would speak to us individually. God, Lord, there will be a lot of words today, a lot of scriptures, but I ask that you would give us individually each one or two things that we um, need to know about you, need to hear from you, things that we need to repent of, things that we need to be encouraged in, uh, Lord, that you'd be active in this place um, and that we wouldn't get in your way, God. Um, Thank you, Jesus, that you are on the throne forever and ever, and nothing will change that, God. In your name, Jesus, amen. All right, so a little context of the passage. Uh, We're in Revelation 4, as I mentioned. The author is John. Um, who was banished on Patmos, and God visited him and gave him prophecies, visions, um, the whole book of Revelations. Uh, Prior to chapter 4, they just finished the seven churches, uh, the churches at the time, but actually a a lot of the churches and the messages that God had for the churches in Revelation are relevant today. So I would encourage you all, read read those and read those frequently, uh, because God has a message through those churches to us today. But we're going to be jumping in right after those letters to the churches. Um, So this is, in chapter 4, this is what will happen. So it's a prophecy of what is to come. But I think we need to go a little deeper than that of, oh, I can't wait for that day. Yes, we should, and we're going to talk about that. However, this, what will happen is also an eternal truth that is valid today, that is true today, that should cause us to live in such a way because of the future of Revelation 4. So this is not purely just prophecy. This is, okay, this is a truth, a truth in 2022. Now how do I respond to that? So we're going to be focusing a lot about how it applies to us today throughout the time. So let's read verses 1 through 7 to give us a little overview of the first section. It says this, After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and the peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as if it were a sea of glass, like crystal. 
And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And so just picture that scene. I don't think anyone has even come close to seeing something similar to this. No movies, no sci-fi, whatever. Nothing really comes close to this. And as you can see throughout the time, John's giving descriptions, it's like this, like this. There are no actual words to describe God's presence, to describe the throne, and to, to describe the throne room. And so as, as he entered this room, notice in verse 1 that he was welcomed. He was taken up to heaven and welcomed by a voice, a voice of a trumpet. This voice is considered to be Jesus, uh, and many remind us, and, and it may remind us of a verse regarding the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 to 17 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And so the rapture is when God will come back to take his children in the future, and, and I would say the not-so-distant future. And in a similar way to John, we're going to be welcomed into the throne room, escorted by the one with a trumpet, the voice of a trumpet, which is Jesus. And we're going to connect that a little bit later, but it's interesting, this voice of a trumpet leading into the throne room of God, that he was welcomed there from the very beginning, even with all the chaos, the, 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 the holiness, the, the beauty of the surroundings, they were welcomed in through the trumpet, through Jesus. And so this is what is coming in our future, um, what we'll, some will see and experience one day. However, we'll see this scene in one of two ways, as we'll discuss later. Not everyone will be welcomed with, uh, through the person with the voice of the trumpet. Not everyone will be welcomed by Jesus through this, and we'll discuss that a little later as well, but wanted to set the scene of this voice of the trumpet. That's not everyone that goes and experiences this in this way. So verse 2 goes on to show that John came up in the Spirit, and that sounds like a very strange phrase for some of, some of us, um, especially those that may be new to learning about God, but I know that some of you also understand. But real quick, as Christians and humans, we talk about being in the spirit and in the flesh, and, and it's almost Christianese words. So we need to make sure that we're not talking in Christianese all the time, that we explain these things. In the flesh means the natural, the human state, um, but it also can mean living in our selfish and natural desires of things that we're trying to just live for ourselves. That's living in the flesh, if you will. It's just seeing what is physical and not seeing the things of faith, the things that are spiritual. That we're only seeing the things that we can see versus what is the reality that is going on around us. So that's in the flesh. While in the spirit means the internal, the spiritual realm of things and also can mean living in such a way that is empowered and honoring to God. Um, and this clearly, this passage was showing us that this experience of the throne room of God can only be done in the spirit. There is no physical way that we can actually see and understand and describe God being on the throne or his throne room. It can only be done in the spirit. And as we consider that, I'm grateful that we're living for something and with something and being empowered by something that is more than ourselves. 
If we could truly grasp and understand God for ourselves, he wouldn't be God, we would be our own gods. And so this concept of being in the spirit in the throne room of God is encouraging to us, I would say, that it is something bigger than ourselves, something that is more holy, more powerful than ourselves, that he brought us up into in his spirit. And we don't have to wait till this day to be in the spirit. Today, we can be led and empowered and be given eyes to see in the spirit of God, in the uh, presence of God today. So he goes up to heaven, and what does he see? He sees a lot of things, as you see, as you could see, the, the creatures, the thrones, the, the garments, the crowns, um, the, the, the jewels, the crystals, all of these things. But notice in verse 2, the first thing he sees out of all those things, and he's opened the door of the whole room, he sees one who is on a throne. Just think about it. There's all these creatures. There's 24 thrones, people singing. It's crazy. But then he's laser-focused on the one who is on the throne. And so in these coming verses, we're going to be looking at God being on the throne in this scene specifically because, yes, there's a lot of things going on that we may touch on, but the focus of the throne room is the throne itself, is the one who is on the throne. So what does this mean for eternal truths? How does this change us today? So again, verse 2, it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And so from this, one thing that we can take is that God alone is on the throne and he's in the center of the scene. There's creatures with crazy eyes, wings, and looks, all these things, but the only thing that John can really focus on is the throne. Nothing outshined God in this scene. And before we dive into a little bit more, step back first, what is an actual throne? Because most of you haven't seen a throne, you haven't been on a throne, there's not many thrones in our society, but a throne, one could define it as a royal power and dignity. It shows sovereignty. It's a physical place in this scene, but it also symbolizes the authority of God stretching from the heavens, which is this scene, but also to the earth from beginning through eternity, through forever and ever. And so God is on the throne and in the center of every, everything. How can we apply this truth? What does that mean? We don't want to just be Christianese like, yeah, God's on the throne, move about my day. The first thing is everything in our life must revolve around God if God is on the throne. So it may sound obvious, and for those who've been following Jesus for some time, you'll readily agree, but what does it actually mean? What does it mean that everything revolve around God? In eternity, we're not going to be so worried about what there is to do or what food we'll have or what activities are there to entertain ourselves. We're going to be so overwhelmed with who God is, his presence, However, this is not something just in the future. On this earth today, everything ultimately revolves and centers around God. Think about from the beginning before earth, the heavens, humans existed, God existed, all before all these things. He created all of us, ultimately for his glory, so it's not about us. He's the preeminent one. He's the one that deserves the glory. Colossians 1, 16 to 18 says this, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
And so we have to remember that this life's not about us. The Bible is to and for us, but it's not about us. It's about God. It's about his holiness, his perfection, his justice, his grace, his love, his pursuit of humans, his redeeming and purchasing of humans and ultimate victory. So practically, what does it mean to live as if everything revolves around God being on the throne? And I would say there's a strong push around in our culture to do what is best for us, what feels good, what, what makes us like just excited and happy. We need to do what we want when we want. There's a push to do what's best for you and to fight for your rights. They make it sound really nice and, and make it an apologetic of why you need to do things for yourself. But it's not. But in those cases, who is on the throne when we just try to fill our desires and fill our um, passions? It's yourself and or the culture's opinions that you're just trying to appease people. And there's also a strong push to fill your time with your favorite passions. And certainly there's times that God gives us those opportunities that give us life. But what, at what point are we putting the things that give us life on the throne instead of putting the giver of life on that throne? And so we must be careful not to worship the gifts rather than the giver. And so we can get so caught up into entertainment today, all of the sports, the music, all of these things that aren't inherently bad, just like the creatures and the, the, saint, the saints on the throne. All of these things aren't bad, but if it takes away our focus from the one who is on the throne, then it is bad. It is hindering your walk with God. And so if we ask him to align his will with ours and no I said it that way not align our wills with his but take his will for us and do that rather than asking us what does what feels good what might I do this summer what might I do this weekend ask God God what do you want me to do today what do you want me to do this weekend that is living in such a way that God is on the throne in the midst of all the noise in the midst of all the things we could do we're going to do what God says and God, as you pray that prayer, it's a dangerous prayer because you're going to do radical things that people will think you're crazy about. But it is good. It is the right way. It is the good way to live. And so if we seek him in prayer, ask him the everyday question of what do I do today? What should I do tomorrow? What should I do with my career? Rather than saying, well, this makes sense and so I should do it. Rather, ask God first and then move from there. It will be a radical life, but it will be the best life. And so we talked about God, that he is the center of our lives, but also this truth remains in verse 2. It talked about how there is one on the throne. And again, for Christians, that might seem obvious. Of course, there's only one on the throne. There's one God, and there's tons of scriptures to point that out. But the, reason, the way that John pointed it out very clearly seems to mean it's important that it's one person on the throne. It's not a shared throne. It's not that the elders get a, get a chance at the throne. They don't get to sit there in the, in the evenings. Only God is on the throne. And I would say our culture is consistently, and I would say even more consistently, saying that the message of the gospel might be a nice message. And I, going on the streets, sharing the gospel, and as we go to Ocean City, we're going to hear it all the time. That's a really nice message. But that's not my faith. That's not what I believe. But we know as, as believers that the eternal truth, that there is one on the throne for all people, all nations. As we see here in Psalms 47, 6 through 8, it says, Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a psalm. 
God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. And so the, in the age of tolerance that we live in, it's, that's not my faith, so it doesn't apply to me. But Jesus, God, being on the throne applies to all people, whether we like it or not. And I always use the analogy of if I just believe that, say, a unicorn is right behind you, that doesn't make it true. We need to seek what is true. And the truth is that there is one who is on the throne. And in the end of all time, all people will bend the knee to that throne. Philippians 2, 9 through 11 says this. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so based on this, the message that we share is one that boldly proclaims the truth of the gospel is for all people, not just for those who believe. This reality of God's on the throne is a reality for all people. The reality that God reigns both in justice and love is for all people, so we need to communicate that way. We are going to be faced uh, with name-calling and called bigots, and we're so unloving and so narrow-minded. So be it, because we're going to communicate the truth consistently, because God is on the throne, and he's deserving of that worship. And for those who know that this is true, that for all people um, will bend the knee to God one way or the other, uh, we have to live in such a way that one is on the throne. And it's similar to what before, but a lot of times we say, okay, God's on the throne. I'm going to ask God for what I should do this weekend, or I, I should just spend time in God asking him to align his will with mine. But then all of a sudden we ask God, but then we also let other things creep in. We let those families, friends, the workplace, the culture dictate in addition to God. So it's God plus. And we have to be careful that there is only one on the throne, that there is not a shared seat on the throne, but as a singular uh, person on the throne, which is God. And surely there's going to be people that are mentors for you and find a mentor, find someone who can disciple you and teach you about the word, the Bible, Jesus, how to live a life following Jesus. And yes, we should submit under those teachings and submit under that leadership. But if anything contradicts with the one ultimately on the throne, God, we need to run away and do that alone. So yes, it may be obvious that one is on the throne, but as Christians in our culture, oftentimes we let it creep in where there are multiple thrones in our lives rather than the one. All right, so we go on to verse 3, Revelations 4, 3, it says this, And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And so just this throne that John goes into to further describe it. Again, not distracted by the noise of the creatures, the noise of the 24 other thrones, which I'm sure are, lo are looking incredible. He's so focused on this throne of God. And so as we talked about, God has the all authority being on the throne. And this imagery of gemstones gives us another perspective, another way to look at it. And, and I'll jump through some symbolism here. I'm not going to go too far into it, but the jasper is probably referring to a clear jewel, which symbolic, symbolically one could, through scripture, say it represents that God's perfection and purity, his, his beauty in his perfection and purity. 
and the carnelian, of, or some uh, versions say ruby, more like a red jewel, that one could say, uh, again, backed up by scripture, that it could represent Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And so it's just this beautiful picture of symbolism, but also reality of what he could see to look at. And we've seen diamonds. We might have one on our hands, but consider a throne full of diamonds, of precious jewels and gemstones. It is a sight to be seen, a sight that we are in fear almost of seeing because it's so beautiful. And as John says, it was like these things. So it wasn't a perfect gemstone example. It was like this. It was the closest thing he could find. And God is so glorious, so beautiful that one may consider the most beautiful things on earth cannot even compare to this scene. And I I don't know about you, but I've seen some beautiful places on earth. I'm like, wow, I could look at that mountain forever. Like, I'll be satisfied if I sit here for the rest of my life. It's beautiful, but compared to that, it's nothing. Psalms 27, 4, it says this. One thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And just think about that. All of the days of our lives, one day we're going to be gazing at that throne, gazing at his throne room, worshiping God forever and ever. And I hope you are looking forward to it as well. I long for this day that we can gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We can see the full power and authority of God on display. But then as we read in verse 3, in the midst of the beauty of the throne, behind it, it says, or around the throne, was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And have you all seen rainbows? Do you get amazed by them like me, or is it just me? Okay, you do. And I'm not talking like the small little bitty rainbow in one part of the sky, but the full ones. It's just beautiful, and and it's funny because people always post them on social media. It's like if there's a rainbow, you have to share it. It's, It's incredible how all of humanity is just enthralled by them. It's incredible the beauty that it shows, and, and John compares it to this. Imagine that connected to the throne. It's breathtaking. But what does a rainbow actually represent? Unfortunately, our cultures have made it represent good luck. Um, maybe Skittles at the end of it, taste the rainbow. That was my favorite candy growing up. But I still like them, but I know it's not what this is referring to. Um, and, and most unfortunately, with, with the rainbow, it's often used today as groups of people who act in defiance of God's design. And so little by little, our culture have, have changed the meanings of rainbow, getting further and further from the original meaning of the rainbow. According to scripture, a rainbow is actually a, a, a creation from God and a direct message to us that we should heed, that we should listen to. It is from Genesis, and we will go right to the text. And as context, in, uh, the, the people were acting in a complete wickedness and rebellion. And after calls for repentance, they still rejected God. God sent a global flood and destroyed all the people except for Moses and his family because they submitted to God. And after the floods, God sent a rainbow and said this, Genesis 9, 13 through 16. It says, I've set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring the clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh. 
that is on the earth. And so this message of the rainbow is a promise to creation that he would not, the fl- not flood the entire world like that again. What a gracious God. Because I look at our culture, it's like, is the flood coming again? There's so much wickedness and rebellion against God. But he promised that he will have mercy, not to all people. He will have mercy to those he will have mercy. He will have mercy to those who trust in his son, Jesus. But he gave and promised this. He promised and gave us a sign to ensure we remember that he is a giver of promises, but he's also a keeper of promises. And remember, this sign of a rainbow, this sign of a promise is connected to the throne of God. So God is on the throne, all-powerful, beautiful, central to everything. Yet he wants us to know that he is faithful to his promises. Think about this. Those who have power, how do they often act over time? They neglect their promises, and sometimes very quickly. They do, not, they do things to add more power. They abuse, and they take advantage of those that have less so that they can have more. Look at modern times of those who are in power both in the public and private sector but there's look at history of the last thousands of years whenever power comes it corrupts and promises are neglected time and time again so as humans this is a hard concept to really grasp sometimes that an all-powerful god and a god who can do all things who's so holy so perfect so beautiful yet he still keeps every one of his promises because we have seen what power does to humans, we, we can't grasp it sometimes. But God is different than us. He is higher. He is above us. And so he can be all-powerful, yet at the same time, faithful to his promises that he gives us. And what are his promises? And we could go like 18 hours into this, so we're not going to. But just consider four or five of them. Uh, in Isaiah 26.3, we won't read the verse, but it says he'll strengthen and help us. He'll uphold us with his righteous hand. John 16.33, he will give us peace. He will give us victory. Deuteronomy 31.8, it says he'll never leave us. Matthew 11.28 says he will give us rest. 1 John 1.9, he will forgive us. And you can go on and on. Every single scripture, every single book of the Bible has promises from God. And every one of them, he has been faithful and everyone, he will be faithful. And thinking of God being on the throne is usually a sense of, oh, he's so big and powerful and holy. But I would say Revelation 4.3 is saying he is all of those things, yet he still is faithful to his promises. And so consider God being all-powerful, yet remembering his promises. Remember to separate what we know and seen in humanity. And remember that God is not like them, that God is a good ruler, and he's faithful. In Psalm 145, 13, it says this, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And I like that because it shows that he's faithful in his words, but those words are not burdensome. They're not to condemn. They're actually kind that he shows, that he says, and that he does. So God is all-powerful, yet still faithful, being on the throne. Remember the one who's on the throne, his character, his attributes, and also remember his promises. Remind yourself, remind others, especially in the most challenging of times. Don't let people 
go through hard times alone. And you know people in your life that are going through hard times. Go and seek them out and share with them the promises of, the, of God. Remind them of the rainbow next to the throne. And remind yourself of these things as well. So we'll go on to verse 4. Let's reread it. It says, Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So there's around the one throne, John finally was like, oh my goodness, it's so beautiful. But he's like, oh, also there's these things going on. And so who are these elders? We're not going to go into the depth. We could talk about all the ideas behind it. But real quickly, um, a lot of people consider or compare this to 1 Chronicles 24 and 25. In the setting up of the temple, which the temple in the Old Testament is a symbol of heaven, of, of the eternal uh, kingdom. Oftentimes, uh, in those two chapters, there's 24 priests set up with different duties. And then the next chapter, there's 24 musicians as well. And so some say that's connected. Um, also, some could say that it represents the 12 tribes of Israel, which we know about, and also the 12 apostles of Jesus. So either way, you can make an argument for some of these, and we're not going to go into a study of this. But I would say that this, these 24 elders are a symbol of representation of the people. So just think about this. This is the glorious throne that John could even, couldn't even stand, that he couldn't even describe it in words, yet these 24 elders were standing next to God's one and only throne. So we know from this, the fact is that God on the throne invites us to be with him. Not to be on the throne with him, because there is only one who's on the throne, but he invites us to be with him, to be next to him. And I think it's important, though, to clarify, though, that God does not need us in heaven. There's some songs even that says, like, heaven's empty without us. He doesn't need us. He's all glorious. He's not lost without us. He has been from eternity past to eternity future. He is God, and nothing will change that. And that might sound offensive, like, but God doesn't need me? Like, I thought I was really good. I thought I was a good person. I thought like I could do a really good job singing in heaven because I have a nice voice. But I would say it's actually better that we're not needed, but we're wanted to be in his presence. We're invited to be in his presence. Isn't that greater than just being needed? Oh, I guess I got to let you in because I got to be nice. But he's inviting us into his presence. And he doesn't abdicate his throne. He doesn't say, okay, you can take over. I'm going to go take a nap. He's there forever reigning. So he's keeping all things together. He's there forever. And this brings us a couple application points for today. He invites us to be in his presence, not just in heaven, but today. And for those who don't know Jesus, this doesn't mean that everyone can be in God's presence immediately. For those who don't know Jesus, it does not mean that you're in his presence already. The invitation gives us a clear path or a doorway to his presence, but you have to walk through that door. And you must be saved, you must be forgiven, but this only comes by turning towards Jesus. As we see in Acts chapter 3, it says this, verse 19 to 21. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, long ago. And so this is after uh, Peter is sharing the message that Jesus saves. 
He's telling people to repent, to turn away from sin, turn away from rebellion, and turn towards God, towards Jesus, that our sins may be blotted out, a.k.a. forgiven, and washed clean as if they never were done. But verse 20, it said, times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. And so as we come to know Jesus today on this earth, as we follow him, as we believe and trust in him, we have the presence of the Lord today, but also for eternity. And so do you want to know God? Do you want to be in his presence now and forever? It must start with repentance and faith. But for those who already know God, which many of you do today, you've been walking with Jesus for years, remember that you are invited to his throne today to sit next to him, with him today by the spirit of God. And so my question to you is, are you sitting in his presence each day? Not just reading the scripture and crossing it off the list, but sitting in his presence and listening in to what the throne has to say. Think about it. You're invited into his presence through prayer and the word. Are you taking advantage of that access? And I would encourage us all to stir one another up towards being in his presence more. Ask your friend, your neighbor, your family member, whatever it might be, Ask them, are you spending time in God's presence? Not just crossing something off the list and going about your business, but spending time in his presence, listening to what the throne, the one on the throne has to say to you. And so, yes, we will be in heaven in his presence, and it's going to be glorious, but don't settle for waiting. Go into his presence today. Not only does he invite us into his presence, he also invites us into his service. And we're going to learn later that these elders were singing constantly, so maybe they were worship leaders of some sort or singers. I hope I get a new voice in heaven because it can get ugly. <laughs> but uh, either way, they were serving God. They weren't just like, oh, I'm on the throne. I finally made it. I'm going to kick my feet up. They were serving even in the presence of God in the glory of heaven. And they were throwing crowns at Jesus' feet. They were working. They were serving and I want to remind us that the definition of a Christian is not just one who is saved by Jesus, one who says a prayer. It is one who follows him. The, the original meaning of Christian is follower of Christ. And so we have to remind ourselves that, that it's not something we check off a list and just believe or say. It's something that we do actively. And one of that active ways to, to follow him is to serve him. He invites us into his service. And he ultimately came down through Jesus showing us what service means. And we can go through the Gospels and see that he was a servant, not just a power-hungry leader. And what a blessing it is that the all-powerful God, the one who's majestic and beautiful on his throne, invites us to not only be in his presence, but to serve him. What an honor that is, to make his name known, to care for those that he loves. It's a privilege, not a burden. And I would say if you feel that it's a burden to serve God and to serve others, because I've been there, and I, I'm sure a lot of you have been there as well, that it's like, man, I don't want to serve God. I don't want to get up and serve others. I don't want to love that person. What do we do in that situation? I think we need to consider who God is. Consider the one who's on the throne, and that's going to change our burden into a passion and a joy. And so God doesn't say, pull up your bootstraps and do it. He says, come into my presence for refreshing, and I will give you a passion and a burden to serve, to share with others, to love others unconditionally, even when they are not deserving so. So run to God, spend time with his presence, and he will give you motivation, a fire, a passion 
because he is that worthy. When we see God and, and the gemstones and the rainbow, all I want to do is worship, but also do whatever he says to serve him because he's that worthy, that holy, that perfect. First Samuel 12, 24, it says, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. And so in the book of Samuel, when we're serving him and fearing him, it starts with considering what things he has done, who he is, his character, his attributes, what he has done for you. And so my question is, how are you serving God? It will look different for many. Are you serving your family well? Are you sharing with others about this glorious God on the throne over all the nations? Are you giving of your time and resources abundantly for the sake of God's name and those he loves? abound in service don't just cross it off the list be radical and ask God what would he do and I can guarantee you he's going to tell you to do some radical things but it's good and it's the life well lived first Corinthians 15 58 it says therefore my beloved brothers be steadfast immovable always abounding in the work of the Lord knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Again, this is reminding that we're going to be always abounding in the work of the Lord, not just doing the bare minimum, giving the, the X amount of time or X amount of money or whatever, going above and beyond to see the work of the Lord be pushed forward, to make sure that people are well-loved and well-cared for in the name of God, and that we know from this verse at the end that the labor is not in vain, that it will not be wasted life it will not be wasted resources it will be used for god's kingdom and glory and his throne and more people will come to know and worship god it is not a waste of life so god is on the throne and he's inviting you to be in his presence first and secondly and to be in his service and how will you respond will you accept that invitation ask god what are you specifically inviting me to and i know god and his nature will respond to that question so let's go on, verse 5 in Revelation chapter 4. It says this, From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So think about this scene. Uh, before it was gemstones, rainbows. It's like, ah, take a picture. Share it on social media. It's great. But then we look at this scene, which is the same throne. It's not a different throne, uh, like the ugly throne. Like, I want the other one. This is the same throne. And come it, from it comes lightning, rumblings, and thunder. There's seven torches of fire. Not very pleasant imagery at this point. I would say to the contrary, it's scary. And it's okay. We can say that it is scary to look at, to consider what these things might mean. And we can now claim boldly from this verse that God being on the throne creates fear. We saw God being all-powerful, majestic, beautiful. He's inviting all these beautiful things. But in the same breath, on the same throne, he's also fearful. And we hear throughout the scriptures to not fear over 300 times, I would say. And this is true and important. But when we consider God specifically on his throne, on his, uh, of his attributes, his character, we should have fear. We are actually commanded to be fearing God. And this can and should cause us fear. The first reason is Revelation 4 is actually a, a start of the throne being the throne of judgment. 
And so the feeling of fear of God's judgment does not have to end in fear, as we know through Jesus, and we'll talk about that. He's our advocate, the one who came to take the wrath of God himself. But those who don't know Jesus, they will have fear causing us to be sent to hell for eternity. But 1 John 2.1, before we go into that a little more, 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And so we know that the fear of judgment, of hell, of punishment, that is just, does not have to be the end of the story because we have Jesus, the advocate. Jesus, the one who welcomes us into the throne room of God with the voice of a trumpet. He welcomes us. He died on the cross so that we don't have to be justly punished, but that he took that punishment on himself. But I think it's important that we still consider that being under the wrath and judgment of God is a scary thing. Just a couple weeks ago, I had a meal, and we talked for about 45 minutes with with one guy, and he was texting me beforehand about how uh, he was up at night and scared of, of, of the judgment of God, but he was still not understanding how God could judge all people, and even if they're of different religions. And, and we talked through it. I shared scripture about the judgment of God, but also that Christ is the advocate, that Christ showed his love by saving us from that judgment, that he is actually more loving because there is a judgment, because he saved us from that, because he took it upon himself. And so he was scared and unfortunately, he left saying, everything, all this makes sense logically. Like, you proved your point through the scriptures, but I just don't like it. And he left sad. And honestly, I, I wish I could be like, oh, just Jesus is all lovey-dovey and all this. And like, convince him and like, try to debate him and all that. But I have to share the truth that God judges, but he also saves. Choose who you will serve. It's Jesus or not. And so this is a, a, a hard truth, but it is a truth that we have to stand firm on. And that there is a judgment that causes fear. To, it's fear, fearful to be in the wrath of God, but it's also what love and what grace that God shows us through Jesus. So that's for non-believers, but believers are also caused to fear in the presence of God. Though we, it's not the same fear of judgment of, oh, God's going to send me to hell. No, we're, we're sealed in, in the book of life. We're sealed to be saved forever in his presence, and we worship him for that. But at the same time, as we are invited into God's presence that we talked about before, we're also going to, and we should, increase in fear towards him. We're too small, too imperfect, too undeserving to be in his presence. Even as Christians, and reminder for those that may have been walking with the Lord for a long time and you become a little jaded of, well, at least I'm not like that person. Or look at me, I've gone so, God's changed me so much in the last 10 years, I'm so good. And it gets a little hint of, oh, I'm worthy to be in heaven because I followed Jesus. And so there's this pride factor that we need to be careful of. So just a couple scriptures of commandments to fear God. Deuteronomy 10, 12, it says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And then it goes on in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, at the end of the book. It says, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. 
And so that, that, that passage is about all the wanderings of the earth and, and chasing after the passions and the lusts of the earth in Ecclesiastes. And at the end of the matter, this is all we need to do is fear God and keep his commandments. And there's countless others in the New Testament of fearing God, of, of, de- of desiring to increase our fear of God. However, fearing God, because a lot of times we say fear, I'm going to run away. But fearing God actually should draw us near to him. We know he wants us to be in his presence from the previous verses, which is, this is not contradictory, but we come in with a sense of fear as we are invited. He's all-powerful, perfect, glorious, his love. We are going to be drawn to him even in fear. And just as, as an example, if you know of someone who's a lot more powerful than you, you may fear that person. However, if that person's on your side, if you're in a situation that you're up against it and have no way out of it, you're going to run to that person that's going to help you. Run to that person that you fear. I remember when I played tackle football um, with like friends and stuff, there was always that like one or two guys that were bigger, faster, and better at everything, every position. I, like, I was scared of them, but as soon as I was on their team, I was like, all right, we're going to win. Like, I feel good about this. And I know that's like a silly example for, for tackle football, but God is on our side. God is fighting for us and with us. And there's so many scriptures about God being a warrior and fighting on our behalf in the battles of daily life. We fear him, but we stay really close to him because we know he is more powerful than anything that we're going to face. And so what should we do practically? Go into God's presence. It's a common theme. Spend time with him. Ask him to reveal himself to you. And this will in turn increase your fear of him. The more we know God, the more we're going to fear him, but the more confident we're going to be, the more bold we're going to be. And just think about it. What if we, as individuals and corporately, did not have any fear in life except God himself? Like, fearful of nothing. Like, we will run through a brick wall. Think about it. Think of how much we could accomplish for the kingdom of God. Think of all the time wasted in fear paralysis. It's a thing. Think of the times you did step out in faith and boldness and God used it. So there's the negative, but also the positive of, oh yeah, I was really bold that day and I don't know why, but it was effective. Think of all the trials that you've been through or even are still going through. God's on the throne and God's all powerful and fearful, but he's on the side of those who believe him. Psalm 118.6 says this, the Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me. And I pray that God would increase our fear of him, which in turn will decrease our fear of everything else and launch us into radical obedience and boldness and also radical worship. And speaking of worship, let's go on to verse 6 through 11 to close out our time. So verse 6 through 11 says this, And before the throne there was as it were a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne 
and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. What a scene, what a music rendition. What, just think of what it will sound like when we are all worshiping and bowing down before the God on the throne. And I look forward to that day. But at the same time, this should cause us to live in such a way to reflect this future state. And so these creatures, just as a side note, in some translations were known as beasts. I think a better translation is creatures because beasts is almost like satanic in, in a lot of ways, like the great beasts. So it's, it's creatures. These are angelic beings. Um, we're not going to go into the meanings of the four, like the heads and, and all those things. There's a lot of interesting things to go into. But either way, these angelic beings, I would be quite distracted by the looks. I mean, think of it. Like, there's a creature like a lion, like an ox, and all these things. Like, what are they doing here? But still, everyone's so focused on the throne. These creatures are focused on the throne, and it is good. And, but notice what everyone else in the room is, room is doing. Creatures, elders, everyone is worshiping. And so we can conclude for ourselves that the response to God on the throne is worship. There's no other response. They didn't like have like a plan of an event. All they could do was bow down. All they could do is throw their crowns. All they could do is give everything they have to God. That is true worship. And so if we do not consider God being on the throne, we'll worship whatever we consider as valuable. These people saw the only thing valuable in that entire room was not their golden crowns, not their... Uh, whatever it might be they had around them, not the thrones that they were staying on, because they're like, oh, maybe if I bow down and worship God, someone's going to steal my throne. They don't care. All they care about is worshiping God. So it's a radical life of worship is a disregard of anything else that we might consider valuable so that God can be worshiped. And so consider that God is on the throne and nothing else, and the only response I can guarantee you will be to worship him, if you truly understand and experience who God is. And so ask God, because it needs to be changed, so ask God to change our mindset, to not look at the challenges of life, not the waves and the, all the craziness, all the creatures, the elders, all the busyness of life. Ask God to not us let, let us be distracted by those things, but singularly focus on the one who is on the throne. There's so much noise, our phones, our um, work, all these things. Yes, we need to do them. Yes, we need to work faithfully and we need to serve faithfully, whatever it might be. But if anything is taking away the throne of God, then we need to take a step back. And we're designed for so much more than just kind of surviving each day. And this does not mean like, oh, God saying that we have to worship him, that does not mean that have headphones in 24-7, listening to music and talking to no one. That's not the response. Note that these people, yes, they sang, yes, music is good, and it should be used for worship. But it is so much more. They threw their crowns. They physically moved and were bowing down before the throne of God. They did something. They acted on their worship. Hebrews 13, 15 says this, Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So how often do we can, uh, put up a sacrifice of praise? Continually. 
So just like they continually bowed down and worshiped him, we will do that one day. We may not physically be able to bow 24-7. I get it. We have jobs. We have people to feed. We have people to serve. We have things to do. But as it says in Hebrews, that our, the, the, our lips can acknowledge our name continually, that we can continually be worshiping him, continually acting out in response to who God is on the throne. And I would say if we can get the worship of God on the throne right, we're going to be on the right path. Because we get so confused of like, what does God have for me? Where, do you, where does he want me to go? Does he want me to move to this place or this country or go to this school or take this job? All those things, I get it. It can be confusing. But if you're going to set and say, God, I'm going to worship you on the throne for who you are, whatever, all that other stuff, come what may, you're going to be on the right path. So take each day, make worship your mission and in the second half of this section of revelation 4 it talked about the crowns as a form of worship um in the greek it's stephanos i think i'm pronouncing that rightly but it's, it's really a badge of royalty a prize in the public games it was used for or a symbol of honor generally and we're not going to go in through a study because we'd be here another hour um i studied a lot and i was like oh wait i can't do all that but there's five specific crowns in the scripture that talks about um, that believers, you and I, get. We're not royalty on this earth. None of us will ever be, probably. Um, if you do, let me know. But we can earn the imperishable crown, as it talks about in, verse, uh, in 1 Corinthians. We can get the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, the crown of life. And all these things are about being faithful, about looking forward to the Lord's coming, all these things. And you can look them up on your own time. It's an awesome study. But what we need to take from this worship of throwing crowns down is that we need to live in such a way now that we are not just getting by and surviving and, oh, at least I believe in Jesus. I'm good. Live in such a way that you get crowns. And why? Not so that you can have glory in the church or glory in social media or the glory of wow he's doing so much good honestly who cares you're going to get a crown of glory so that you can participate even further in the worship of god so live in such a way that you are going to get crowns live in such a way that you are honored so that you can pass that honor to the one who is actually worthy not yourself in first corinthians 9 24 one of these crowns it says this do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And we know at the end of the day that we will throw any crowns that are given to us for the life we lived or the life we hoped for in Jesus we're ultimately going to throw those things at the throne of God. And, and that is a, a call to us that we are going to be in this presence of the throne one day. All of those who believe in Jesus Christ live in such a way that proclaims the truth that God is on the throne and live in such a way that God will reward crowns so that you can have more to worship him. And I pray for those that may not be following Jesus, that may be considering Jesus still, considering is God on the throne is God on my life's throne if you will and I would encourage you to consider who this who this one on the throne is and you're going to see he's all-powerful he's perfect he's beautiful he's majestic 
He's faithful to his promises, but he's also fearful. And there is only one way to the throne room of God, and that is through Jesus. The only other option is to be set out from the throne into the lake of fire, as it says. And so I'd encourage you, God is inviting each of us to the throne room, but also he's inviting us to come closer for those who know Jesus as well. So let's pray. God, you are um, so gracious to even give us a glimpse of your throne room. Lord, forgive us for not understanding your character and attributes, for not even caring in some cases. Um, Lord, we pray that you would give us a desire to be in your presence, Lord. We know you invite us, but Lord, even our motives and our, our desires need to change, so I ask that you would change each one of us. Lord, and for those that are still not in your presence, have not experienced your presence, your spirit, have not experienced forgiveness, Lord, that you would speak to them right now and um, show them your love for them, show them your kindness, show them your invitation that they might enjoy your presence, Lord. And uh, God, um, forgive us as believers of for getting caught up in the day-to-day things of life. Lord, help us to direct our focus towards the crowns that we will one day throw at your feet. Um, Lord, direct us towards spending time in your presence so that we can be motivated and passionate and burning with fire to serve others, God. Lord, put this picture of your throne room on our hearts and minds not just for looking forward to the future, but that you would change our day today um, as well. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.